0: beautiful now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people might think that to know that Jesus is your righteousness might make you lazy. But I have to I have to tell you, Count Zinzendorf who wrote that hymn, um was the, the founding of a, a movement called the Moravian movement. you guys ever heard of the Moravians? Moravians are really important. If any of you guys are Methodists, you um, owe, owe your history to the Moravians because the German Moravians um, were these folks that had basically gotten kicked out of, of where they were living because of their preaching of the gospel, and they were looking for a place, just kind of traveling around, trying to find a place where they could be free from persecution, and Count Zinzendorf let them live on their estate. And they started uh, living there, camping out there, started this um, prayer meeting that lasted for a hundred years. hundred year prayer meeting. Um, Count Zinzendorf got converted, this huge revival broke out, eventually led to John Wesley and Charles Wesley, um, folks like that, George Whitfield, all those folks getting converted. Um, The Moravians did things like they would, you know, they they would send missionaries all over the place. And... um, you know, there was one time when they were trying to send missionaries to minister to the slaves down in the Bahamas, the great sugar plantations, and the slave owners, you know, said, no, we're not going to let you do that. So they simply had themselves sold into slavery um, for the rest of their lives so that they could go down and preach the gospel. There was no other way they could get there. Um, So if anybody ever tells you that, you know, that the righteousness of Christ is sort of, you know, a message that will lead you to just sort of sit on your butt and not Live um, for God, actually just the opposite is the case. And of course, you know, rather than be impressed by the kinds of things they did, they would continue to sing this sort of song, right? You know, it's not that we did these things that other people may look at and say, wow, you're to be congratulated, you're to be commended. They would say, no, Jesus is to be commended. Um, he's the one who has given us strength and power and has set us free. Um, we're going to talk about the freedom of the gospel tonight, I hope. We're finishing our series this week and then one more on the Ten Commandments. And we've been looking at the Ten Commandments in particular, how the Ten Commandments can teach us about living in community. And tonight, the issue we're talking about is about truthfulness. Living as people of the truth. As I said, God is a God of truth. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine, The Sovereign One of Israel does not lie or change His mind. He is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. God is a God of truth, and he wants us, his people, to be a people of truth. And it's vital for community that we be a people of truth. I put a couple quotes on this outline that I I thought sort of introduced the topic well. Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, says this, "'Language is the community's lifeblood. If the circulatory system is diseased, the community gets sick, sick from lies and gossip alike.'" I thought about these words, William Willimon and Stanley Harrows, who wrote—they've written a lot of books. Um, one of their books on the Ten Commandments. I got this little quote from them. They say that Christians betray their non-Christian and I would add Christian brothers and sisters by an unwillingness to say that the reason we are all so miserable is because we do not worship the true God truthfully. We always try and blame our problems on other things, but so often that's the real issue. Yet so often, even even in the Christian community, we're afraid to say say things for what they really are. And we live in a world we live in a world where lies are, are really the currency of our culture. We live in a world where flattery is how things get done. Characterizes our relationships. Um, I'm always struck by this, this song, I think I've even used it before in the series, by Patty Griffin, her song Christina about Christina Onassis, the richest woman in the world at one time, um, who had, I don't, can't remember how many different husbands before eventually she died from the effects of her drug abuse. Um, but, you know, Patty writes this song, If you had the real thing, how would you tell? Liars can say it all just as well. How do you know when people are speaking truth to you? It's a very important question. I'm not going to solve that question tonight. But I will tell you, it's vital that we, the Christian community, live in a countercultural way, that we begin to embody what it means to be people who have a God who is a God of truth. And so that really the, the topic tonight is in an age of hype and spin, and an age where liars can say it all just as well, how can we live in such a way to encourage more truth-telling? How can we live in such a way to encourage more truth-telling? Before we get into that, let's pray again. Lord, we do thank you that you are a God of truth. And I pray even now, even through the foolishness of preaching, that you would teach us your truth. And not only just teach us, but help us to love it and to embody it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how we're going to get at this. First, we're going to talk about what the sin is. If we want to live in such a way that encourages more truth-telling, then we need to be aware of the ways that we live that do not encourage truth-telling. And there's lots of them. So you see lots of little points. And I won't have time to talk about any of them in in much detail, though when we flip the page over, I am going to talk about flattery in a little more detail. Because you'll notice, I did actually talk a little bit about lying and not not telling the truth when I uh, did one of the earlier commandments about not taking the Lord's name in vain. And there is actually in some ways, uh, a lot of uh, commentators and Bible scholars have noticed that there's almost a repeat here. Like, we had that one way back at the beginning, and now we come upon it again. Um, And it's it's interesting. You know, uh, John Calvin says that the repetition, the reason God repeats it, is because it's important to make the point that before you can speak truthfully to one another, you have to speak truthfully about God. And so at the beginning... Uh, in the section of Ten Commandments that are more specifically related to how do we relate to God, we get, do not take the name of the Lord in vain, which has implications for how we speak to his image bearers, that we owe them the, the right to speak truthfully. But, even more specifically now, God says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, the immediate context of this commandment is in the court of law, but you know, No Jewish or Christian commentators have said that this only relates to that because, again, the Ten Commandments are a tenfold summary of all that God has said. And this is a twofold summary. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself is sort of a twofold summary of what it means to live as God intended. So this is a tenfold summary. Therefore, all that the Bible has to say about about how we speak to one another is contained within this commandment. We violate this commandment when we fail to practice neighbor love in all of our speech and even in our silence. Sometimes we break this commandment by our speech. Sometimes we break it by not speaking where we should speak. But the heart of this command is to practice love for neighbor in the way you speak, in the way you communicate. Of course, lying decimates community and relationship. Calvin, in his understanding of this and talking about this, is very helpful. He says, to even understand what the point of this commandment is, you need to go back and say, why did God give us the gift of speech anyway? Certainly to praise God, but more importantly, and more immediately to the context tonight, is so that community and relationships could be nurtured. God gave speech to nurture community and relationships. Therefore, he takes it very seriously When his people, and by that I don't mean just people that call themselves Christians, I mean people made in his image, when his people misuse this gift that he's given to nurture community and instead use it in ways that rupture community, that break down trust and love. God created mankind for friendship with him and with each other. And we use this gift of speech that he gave us, a wonderful tool for that, often a rupture relationship. God is a God of truth. It's deeply offensive to him when his image bearers distort his image by their lies. And yet, of course, I mean, there are some places I've been in the world where the art of lying is really regarded as a, as a, as a real virtue. Uh, you know, places places where, you know, the more you can kind of get away with lying the more you're you know seen as esteemed in certain ways i matter of fact when i was in college i used to take quite great pride in my ability to lie i was really good at sort of getting people to kind of believe a story i would kind of tell them the story and kind of get them going along and um maybe it's why i like the borat movie Or i haven't seen it yet but you know i think i'm going to get a good kick out of that in a lot of ways because in some ways you know i used to do that kind of stuff to people i remember one time i had um a friend of mine was working the front desk at the lobby where I went to college at Berkeley, and um, this girl called up and wanted to know if there was a ski team at Berkeley. And my friend said, "Well, yeah, there is. As a matter of fact, the president of the ski club, ski club, is sitting here right here with me." And so he handed the phone to me, and I convinced her to bring her skis all the way back up to Boston. Um, we didn't have a ski club. I mean, you know, I guess she could have went skiing, but you know, I, I do that kind of stupid stuff. Then I read in the verse. I read a verse in Proverbs, and I thought I was really good at that, and that was, it was funny, my friends got a kick out of it. Then I read a verse in Proverbs that said, like one who shoots hot firebrands, flaming arrows, is one who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. I went, oh, <laughs> I better quit that. God takes it very seriously. Very seriously. You know, sometimes it's amazing how immediately applicable a version of the Bible can be. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that was in there, but um, it's there. Sorry. Um, but God takes this stuff very seriously. There's a, there's a place in Proverbs 6, chapter 6, um, where the Lord describes, it says here, I put it down here for you. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Now, depending on how you regard a heart that devises wicked schemes, I count of these seven, at least three, that are very explicitly under this command. So of the seven things that God says he detests, three of them are violations of this command very clearly. God takes it very seriously, again, because he's a God of truth, and he wants his image bearers not to distort who he is by the way they speak and by the way they live. So how do we live in a such a way that gives a lie to the gospel we say we believe and the God we say we worship? And there's so many ways. I you know, I, I, I just throw that out for you to think about. But it's interesting. You know, the Puritans used to t- use this interesting phrase when they talked about your way of life. They would talk about somebody's conversation, which in their in their way of speaking meant their whole it meant your whole way of life. It didn't just mean the way you talked. I think it's very very interesting because they, they capture this idea that you speak not just with your words, but with your whole way of life, with your whole way of life. With my whole way of life, I am saying something about the God I say I believe in. Yikes. Now you know why we sang so many songs about the blood of Christ. Because who doesn't, who doesn't misrepresent God by the way they speak and by the way they live? Now, Christian worship is actually supposed to work against that. When we gather together as, as, as people to worship God, we should be fighting against that tendency. So it's important. It's one of the, one of the reasons that we think carefully about the songs and the words that we sing in RUF is because it's, it's important that we're singing truth, that we're not just saying to God, I love you all the time and it's all I ever want to do is worship you. We don't sing songs like that because they're not true generally. it's it's not that it's bad to aspire to that, but if you sing a song like that, I sure hope that with part of your being you're saying, Lord, I believe, forgive me for not living this way. This is how I should live. This is how I should long. But but so often, you know, worship is one of the places where, unfortunately, I think we lie all the time. We lie to Christians, and we lie to God, and we lie to non-Christians who come in. We give the lie often that, Come and enjoy Jesus, and everything will be happy. We don't sing very many songs about sadness and brokenness, even though there are more psalms of lament than any other type. Even though there are more psalms that say, God, I don't know where you are, and I'm really confused right now. Help. There are more of those that say, I love you, and everything's going great. Hallelujah. It's true. And yet rarely, rarely do our worship services reflect that. And you need to understand... That that every time Christians gather together for worship, we are saying something to the people gathered and to many outsiders that might come by and hear what's going on. We are saying something about what we believe the normal life experience is like for people in a fallen world. So it's important that we think about that, and it reflects what the Bible says the normal Christian life is about. We break this command as well when we use words, or silence even, to spread gossip, or rumors, or allow someone's reputation to be slandered. Most of the the confessions of faith and the catechisms from the time of the Reformation talk a lot about this idea about slandering. Because, again, the heart of this commandment is about building up Christian community, nurturing Christian community. I should say Christian community, nurturing human community under God. And so slander and gossip and rumors are so destructive of that. God's people should not use words that way. God's people should use words if they have the opportunity to stop that stuff going on, rather than just be silent. We uh, have to work and pray as Christians. Those who follow God should work and pray for a world in which it is easier to tell the truth than it is to lie. Can you dream for that? when we read the Ten Commandments, I, I think I've mentioned this a few of them but not necessarily with all of them. this gives us a vision not only of what God made us for, but what God is committed to restoring. So, you know very very last couple of verses in the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 talks about the people that will be led into the heavenly city and it says specifically that the people that will be kept out are those who are full of lies and falsehood. that God is committed, to building a place and a, and a people who will not be liars and false. and we get discouraged, we think about our lives and where we are now and the people we live among, we need to remember that God is committed to making this a reality and we should be working and praying and longing and, and, and casting our hope on the day when it will, be, it will be easier to tell the truth than to tell a lie. I'm working for that even now. And I think it's important, you know, when you have kids or maybe when you think even back to how you were raised and you reflect on that, and you should reflect on that, and whether what I was taught actually squares with reality. Um, So often, Christian parents in particular tend to be really bad at this, about so often rescuing their kids from the consequences of their sin that they end up lying to their children about what the way the world really is and about the way God's ways are. So it's important it's important as part of this working for a world in which it's easier to tell the truth than it is to lie, it's important that people taste the consequences, the ruptured relationships that lies bring. Which means if, if, if you've been sinned against in that way and you just blow it off and pretend that it, that it wasn't anything. Now, the Bible does say love overlooks a multitude of sins, but the Bible also says that if you see a brother trapped in a sin that you who are spiritual should restore them gently. In other words, there are issues, relational rupturing sins that the Christian community should not just pretend don't exist. They should speak to them. They should confront people at times in love but in courage because we want to be working together to make it a place where when people sin in this way, that it costs something because it's one of the things that God has set up there are consequences to sin. One of the reasons is so that it will become easier to, to not sin than to sin, okay? So it's like, you know, when I discipline my, my children. You know, I say, this, I, I'm doing this for your good. I want you to understand the way the world really works. I don't, I don't want to miscommunicate to you that you can do whatever you want and get away with it. That would be lying to you about reality. I don't want to do that. Even though I don't want to discipline you right now, It's important that I not lie to you about the nature of reality. We break this command when we fail to speak the truth when the opportunity presents itself. And I would include evangelism under this. Again, if if our calling is to use words in such a way that we promote neighbor love, then we should be talking about our faith. The Apostle Peter says to be always prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you. And when opportunities present themselves, to be able to speak to that. Therefore, if you would keep this command well, you should be prepared to think about, why do I believe what I believe? And how would I talk to somebody if they asked me about this? I think, you know, sometimes we feel like, in our culture, that the only things that are real and authentic are spontaneous. I think it's one of the great lies of our, of our day, that the only love is spontaneous, that you can't do anything, you know, real if you plan it out or think about it or, you know, I, I, that's so silly. I think in this regard, you know, you may say, well, if I was really going to share my faith in an authentic way, then it would just sort of come to me if somebody asked me. Well, you know, the Lord will probably give you words, I, I suspect, but I think that you can think about maybe how to, well, how to communicate well about what you believe and to speak um, truthfully in that way. Um, on the other side of that, heresy. Speaking untruth about God is a breaking of this command. Um, Another thing I I thought would be really important to to mention here is the idea of a story war. Because every every one of us has had things said to us and about us our whole lives. And and one of the difficulties that we face is, is sorting out the truth from the lies. The lies we tell ourselves. The lies other people have spoken over us. Some of them are the kind of lies you want to believe. Right? Like... You can do anything you set your heart to, honey. It's a lie. It's not true. Right? But there are a lot of other lies that are much more malicious that are told to us. And so we need to understand that one of the things that God is engaged in, in your heart and your soul, is what we call the story war. God speaks about you, about your past, about your present, and about your future. Truthfully in the scriptures. And I think one of the places where sometimes we don't just lie to our neighbor, we lie to ourselves. We let ourselves be lied to because we believe lies rather than the truth of God. And we, we need to help one another, but we also need to fight that battle um, ourselves. Only God has the courage to truly tell you about your past, your present, and your future. And so often, we settle for an edited version we settle for spin. We settle for lies. We prefer to live with edits and lies so much of the time. But we, we, we want to whitewash our sin. And in doing so, we end up whitewashing the gospel, emptying of its real power. Listen, we are real sinners with a real Savior. We have to, we have to get used to that. And, and I think the last thing I'll say before we turn this over and talk about flattery is we have to repent of the ways that we personally make it more difficult for other people to tell the truth. And I'm thinking of being so defensive whenever anybody tries to confront you that they just give up. When we live that way, we are making it more difficult for a community, a culture of truthfulness to exist. Or when we're so busy that we can never listen when people want to talk to us about something. And then we wonder why when we ask them how they're doing, they just say, oh, fine. But there are ways that we can live that it can encourage truth-telling. And there are ways that we can discourage it. Sometimes we're not even aware that that's what's going on. And one of the... Turn this over. One of of the most common abuses of this command in our day, flattery. I didn't talk about this at all when I talked about taking the Lord's name in vain, so I thought I better talk about it now. There's a Proverbs uh, verse, Proverbs 29.5, that says this, Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. That's very revealing because it it, it sort of brings up the idea of danger. Flattery is dangerous, and flattery is an attempt to control and trap someone. Flattery is about trapping and controlling people. And I've often thought, why is it that the prettiest and the most talented people, men or women that I've known in my years doing campus ministry, are often the most insecure people that I know? And it goes back to this idea of flattery. They've been flattered their whole life. Not been encouraged. There's a big difference between encouragement and flattery. Encouragement is when you speak the truth of the gospel into someone's fear in such a way that they're able to set aside their fear and believe the truth. Flattery is when you say to somebody, don't ever change, you're perfect, you're great. Or when you commend them upon external things constantly when they long for such deeper encouragement, they were made to hear encouragement in such a deeper way. God made us to, to respond to encouragement and to, to kind words and to truthful words. But so often, we speak these flattering, shallow words, which people, at one, at one level, they want something so much more, but they're, they become even addicted to, to, to this flattery, and they get more and more enfeebled. They think it, it trains people to think that their value comes from their looks or their gifts, which is a lie. It's a lie. But, but, you know, those are, those are kind of two different ways of saying your worth is your utility. Your worth, the feeling that you give me, or your worth, the way I can use you. That's not what God made people for. And God's people should not communicate otherwise but we do every time, all the time. How very different from the way the gospel speaks to us. The gospel never flatters us. The gospel says your worth is determined by the one who loves you, not by how he can use you. And unfortunately, I have to stand up here before Christian people who have been told that your worth is basically what you can produce for God. You may not have been told it with words, but you've probably been told it probably even by me, for which I want to repent. But your worth is not your value and your usefulness in the kingdom of God. Your worth is determined by the one who loves you. Paul says it's so clear in Acts chapter 17, when he calls people to to, to worship God, and he says, God lives in a temple not built by human hands, as if he needed anything. He is not, he's not in a temple built by human hands, or he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Paul says, you know, for crying out loud, God is the one who created all things, who set and appointed all the peoples to live in this place and that place and yet we we tell people all the time that your worth even to God is based upon how he can need how, how how much he needs you God doesn't need you the gospel is that God saves people he doesn't need because of his great love for us in Christ now that doesn't mean that God doesn't put you to work in his kingdom but he doesn't love you because you're useful to him He didn't have to create the world in the first place. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. He was fully satisfied in the Trinity. And out of that overflow of love, he created this world. And he gives us the great privilege to certainly be involved in his work. But his love is based on his love. Flattery is about control and about lies. The gospel is always about real encouragement and truth. One of my favorite examples of this, Martin Luther, one time was, uh, heard about a friend of his, George Spilatin. And Spalatin was a, was a co-laborer of, of Luther's, and Spalatin had given some advice to a couple. And then later, after this couple left, he thought about the advice he'd given them, and he decided that it was really bad advice. And not only did he feel bad about it, but he started really beating himself up, saying, how could I, of all people, have given such terrible advice to these people? Surely I, I should know better. I could do better than that. And Luther heard about this guy in his despair, and he wrote this letter, and I love this letter, because he says this, My faithful request, this is Luther's words, an admonition is you join our company and associate with us who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ to seem paltry and trifling to us as though he could only be our helper when we want to be rid of imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no, that would not be good for us. He must rather be a savior and redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities, yea, and from the very greatest and most shocking sins, to be brief from all sins added together in a grand total. There's a lot of us who dishonor God, dishonor Christ, because we think that he can only help us with with our little sins. But we don't trust him for the big stuff. That's what Luther's saying. You're beating yourself up. You feel like Jesus can forgive you for everything except giving bad advice. And you're just beating yourself up over it for days upon days. And you're dishonoring Jesus. You're not treating him as a real savior, but as a paltry, trifling savior. And then Luther says, Dr. Stoufferts. Dr. Stoufferts was a mentor of Luther's. And Luther, Luther says, Dr. Stoufitz comforted comforted me on a certain occasion when I was in the same hospital and suffering the same affliction as you by addressing me thus. Aha! You want to be a painted sinner and accordingly expect to have in Christ a painted Savior. That's like a gilded Savior, somebody that's not real gold. You're not a real sinner, you're just sort of painted like one. You're not a real, he's not a real Savior, he's just painted. That's the imagery there. Listen to Luther, he says, You will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real Savior and you are a real sinner. For God is neither jesting nor dealing in imaginary affairs, but was greatly and most assuredly in earnest when he sent his own son into the world and sacrificed him for our sakes. God does not flatter us. He was not dealing in in imaginary affairs, but in real, real issues when he sent Jesus to die. The gospel sets us free from being driven by flattery, by leveling with us about our sin. Saying, don't you believe that, flattery? Of course you need to change. But the good news is, God loves you as you are, and he loves you too much to leave you as you are, right? The gospel levels with us about our sin and gives us a new identity that does not perish, spoil, or fade. 1 Peter says that it's kept in heaven for you, where you can't get at it to mess it up. Your righteousness is not based upon how well you fit in with the latest fads or how well You um, fit in with all the kinds of things that people would want to flatter you for. Our beauty in God's sight is not dependent upon anything that we do or have, but upon Jesus and his righteousness. Why do we lie then? Well, we don't believe that. We find it so difficult to believe that Christ's righteousness is enough. It's why we sing about it all the time. We're trying to get that truth into our hearts. We lie because we're proud people. We don't want to be exposed as real sinners. We try and cover it up. Jason sent me this, this uh, quote I thought was, thought was great from a Wilco song. You guys probably know. I've not heard the song. I want to now. All my lies are only wishes. I know I would die if I could come back new. That's great. That idea that, that lies, that in other words, part of our lies are covering, but part of them is even projecting what I wish I was. A longing, a longing to be better than I am but you know if you don't live in reality and you just you know just live for for the live the lie longing to be something else it's it's what happens we we can't face who we really are and so we lie we're too proud to be exposed but we also lie because we're afraid fear and unbelief if i tell the truth in this situation it's going to hurt and we don't really believe that when god says thou shalt not bear false witness we often don't believe that that's really the best course of action because we don't believe his word. God says the best course of action is for you not to lie. But we just frankly don't believe him so much of the time. We say, no, God, I, I know that that's generally a pretty good principle and I try to live by that, but in this situation, if you really understood, then you'd, you know, you'd see why I really have to lie in this situation. This person would get their feelings hurt if I, if I didn't lie right now. I don't read in the Bible that protecting people's feelings is a reason to lie. We we often sort of usurp God's place and say, here's where I can lie. But God says, you're not to lie. We gloss over hard stuff all all the time instead of being honest with people about their sin. Again, the way you confront people is not just to go around and say, my job in the church is to point out everybody's sin and devastate them. But I don't generally find that that's, the problem that we face in most churches I've ever been a part of. A guy, a mentor of mine who's passed on now used to say, niceness can kill a church. Niceness can kill a fellowship group. We don't want to be nice. There's nowhere in the Bible that says we should be nice. We should be loving. We should be faithful. Kind. It's a little different. We have to be transformed by the truth. A couple points here as we're, we're closing up. The good news of the gospel is the only thing that can help us live differently, live as people who can speak truthfully, because the gospel that Jesus lived and died in my place is the only thing that can fight against your fear and pride. if If you're afraid, you have to fight against that fear with the truth of the gospel. Jesus lived and died in my place. What do I have to fear? Jesus says, don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill your body and your soul in hell. In other words, the fear of God, Derek Kidner, Old Testament commentator, says, the fear of God is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. And the fear of God is not being afraid of God. It's actually a great place in the Psalms where it says, because with you there is forgiveness of sins, therefore I will fear you. So it can't be terror. Fear of God is not terror. But it's this sense of reverence that everything is connected to God and it's Lived in in um, in reverence, in reverence and in reference to him and his ways. We have to we have to take the truth of the gospel and attack our fear with it, because your fears your fears don't have any real basis. They don't have any real basis. What are you afraid that you'll die? It's not the ultimate. Jesus died, and has prepared a place for you. Jesus said the truth would set you free. Do we, really, we really long to be free, truthful people? Do we use the scripture? Do we meditate on it? Do we use it to examine our hearts and say, Lord, what are the fears that are lurking in my heart that cause me to lie, that cause me to misrepresent you? Help me. There's a proactive duty for God's people. Confession of sin. Do you, do, you, do you confess your sins to God in private and with your friends? The Apostle John tells us, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Do we know about that? Do we understand the importance of confession of sin for helping us to become more truthful? You can't be truthful with one another if you can't be truthful with God. Confession of sin... Not so that God will love you, but because God loves you. And we long to be people more shaped and molded in his image, by his truth. Finally, we have to learn to speak with wisdom and courage. For the sake of God, his honor, and our neighbors. The difficulty of it, there's a lot of difficulties to that. Number one, we live in a culture that doesn't really value truth as much as it thinks it does. I think this all the time. People are always talking about, authenticity and all people are talking about how if we could really get down to some honest communication the world would be a lot better I don't think that's true at all I think if, if people actually truly communicated with one another we'd have a lo- whole lot more fights <laughs> Really I, I think it, I think it's one of the great lies of our sort of modern liberal democracy is to think that if people just talked more and really talked about it that we'd all see eye to eye no because we have lusts and longings and anger and hatred in our hearts In some ways, we get along because we don't talk truthfully about that. But in here, among God's people, we should be able to speak truthfully about that because there is nothing lurking in our hearts that Jesus hasn't died for. We don't have to pretend. But unfortunately, as we try to speak about truth, not only to our culture but to each other, we come with the baggage of a group, the church, that is known for anything but telling the truth. And, you know, one of the hard things is, we don't want to hear the truth. People tell the truth and we leave and we go to another church down the street that will preach more affirming sermons. Well, that's probably not true of you guys because you come to RUF and I, I don't preach very many affirming sermons. But, it, but it's it's true all the time. You know, Bi- the Bible says that in the last days people, you know, will have these itching ears that they'll want to hear lies. and but We have to count ourselves as part of those people. You know, we can't say, well, in here, we're not like that. We want, we want the truth. Not really. In so many ways, we want to believe lies that make our life more comfortable and more controllable. God is a good guy, God, and he dispels those illusions at times, but it's often very painful. One of the most important things you can do on this campus as a Christian is to live and love in such a way that, that the stereotypes that people have about Christians don't fit anymore, so that at least in one circumstance they can say, you know, I thought Christians were all, you know, bigots, self-centered, self-righteous people, but, you know, that guy, he's not really like that, and he says he's a Christian. You know, before you can tell your friends about Jesus, you have to introduce a little cognitive dissonance. They're not even wanting to hear what we have to say, because they think they, they know everything about what Christians are about. How can we live and love in such a way that it gives people pause to say, huh, maybe I need to, maybe I was a little hasty in my judgment. It may not seem like much. It may not seem like as good as sharing the gospel and getting a notch on your belt. But I'm telling you, as we get into more and more of a post-Christian culture, it's a vital skill that we need to learn how to do. And it's a really important work. And it's a work that you guys are going to have to learn how to do in in your culture for your generation. (coughs) <coughs> but I'll tell you this. <coughs> Sorry. Living as a truth teller will hurt. <coughs> Sorry. Do You know that the word martyr, marturio, in the Greek, <coughs> is the word witness. It became the word for people put to death for the faith, But it didn't start out that way. It became so synonymous in the early church, people that witnessed to the truth paid for it with their lives, that we get the word martyr. But there's something about that. Being a witness for the truth in a world that wants to hear lies will cost you. It may not cost you your life, though I have no guarantee of that, neither do you, but it will cost you. If we're not suffering for the truth, we have to ask ourselves whether we're speaking it with our lives and our words. Let's pray together. (coughs) Lord, I thank you that you're a God of truth and a God of patience and a God of pursuing love, and that you are committed to continually speaking truth to us, not just about our sin, but about your grace. And I thank you that there is There is more than enough grace for all the lying that we've ever done and ever will do. But I pray, Lord, that it would pain us to consider how we misrepresent you. Lord, when we live in fear, we communicate to people that you are not a very big or powerful or comforting God at all. And for that, Lord, we ask your forgiveness. When we live controlled by idols, We communicate to our brothers and sisters and to people outside of the community of faith that you're not enough. And for that, we ask you to forgive us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to honor you with our words and our lives, that our conversation would be true and holy so that the world may know that you are true and holy. May that begin with us.